Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Glad to have you back. Again, thank you all for everything you've done. You are amazing. Everywhere I go, it's incredible the response I get, people stopping me, letting me know how much the podcast and the interviews have meant to them and their careers, and it just is so humbling, and I'm really, really grateful This is one of the joys of my life and to be able to do this in my spare time and create something every week that can make a difference is truly something that means so much to me and I'm so grateful to all of you. Today is a very special day because we're going to sit down with Larry Namer who is one of the most incredible people in the entertainment business you'll ever meet. And we're going to have a great time. You're going to learn a lot about the business. going to learn a lot about risk and what it takes to get there. And as I sit across from Larry, he's the kind of guy that just has this interesting presence to him. Yes, he's huggable and lovable, but he also has the feeling and the aura of a guy who is a risk taker and a leader of men and women. A man who could do anything at any time with ingenuity, planning, a sense of figuring out what the needs are and what the dearth of entertainment is in a certain area and to go for it in that area and change that to something that's productive. A man who never went head-to-head against anyone who was already in a place. He would be a guy who would look where there wasn't something and put it together and make a plan and succeed. 
with a lot of detailed research, a lot of thought process, a lot of planning. He figured out a way to win in areas that most people wouldn't even think of. And that's what makes him special, and that's what's made him a success. When he launched E-Entertainment Television, all he thought about in his mind was, let me look at a newspaper like USA Today. Okay, so we got the front pages, the first section, which is all news. Okay, we got that covered by news networks. But there wasn't anything out there with entertainment to show the world what it was about the world of entertainment and the insides and outs about it that was evident in your entertainment section in the newspaper. And he went for it, and he got it going. And it normally would take millions and millions of dollars, but he figured out a way to do it for less. And he built it into one of the most successful networks in the history of the world. And the thought process to me and to everyone out there of a guy who did all this and he still wants to do more. He still wants to break into other markets. He still wants to figure out different business models. He never stops. And I can guarantee you, if you put all these philosophies at work, the risk-taking, the analyzing where your business can grow in a place where somebody hasn't tapped it yet, I can guarantee you, you will have the possibility of having the kind of career he has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. Very excited today. My guest, Larry Namer. This guy is incredible, and I should just get with the introduction as soon as possible because this thing is like war and peace, and this guy is a wealth of knowledge, and we are lucky to have him today. So here goes. Larry Namer is an entertainment industry veteran with over 45 years of professional experience in cable television, live events, and new media. He is a founding partner of Metan Global Entertainment Group, otherwise known as MGEG, a venture created to develop and distribute entertainment content and media specifically for Chinese-speaking audiences in China and abroad. MGEG recently launched the inspirational competition series The Bruce Lee Project in China, in conjunction with the company films co-owned by Keanu Reeves and Stephen Hamill, which is Shannon Lee's production company, and Benaroya Pictures. Namer was not only involved in creating the series' original format, but currently oversees sales and development for the project. Namer is the co-founder of E-Entertainment Television, 
a company now valued at over $3.5 billion. And the creator of several successful companies in the United States and overseas. Among those companies are Comspan Communications that pioneered Western forms of entertainment in the former Soviet Union, including the syndication of the popular soap opera Santa Barbara, which ran for 10 years in the region, and Steeplechase Media that served as the primary consultant to Microsoft's MeTV for developing interactive TV applications. Steeplechase was also involved in the early development of ITV programming, creating interactive episodes of Baywatch, Pacific Blue, and over 250 episodes of Judge Judy. Namer also created a coalition of North American's top TV and film writers partnering up to launch many, many joint ventures linking Western writing talent and transmedia projects for the Chinese market. His most recent series is Fashion X, a fashion-themed series for the China market covering the top fashion weeks around the globe in major cities, including New York, Paris, Milan, London, and Los Angeles. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, one of the most groundbreaking people in the entertainment business, and it's an honor to have him here. Please welcome Larry Namer. Hey, great to be here. <laughs> Should be fun. One of the things that fascinated me about you, the fact that I think most people, for some reason in the entertainment business, at least that I've seen, you haven't really noticed a shift in people saying, hey, we want to figure out how to tap into the rest of the world. Now, obviously, when a movie comes out, there's the domestic box office and the worldwide box office. But specifically, China, for instance, and Asia, where you're very involved now, right from the beginning when you were starting, what was it that inspired you to say, let's do this now? Yeah, so early on I realized, because I, I used to do a lot of planning for media projects and stuff, and we used to weight them, you know, when you do the economic analysis, you weight them like 90% U.S. and 10% the world, uh, you know, and I began to watch the shift, and you know, now when you do it, it's like 30% U.S. and 70% the world, so that the clearly the rest of the world um, was becoming more and more important in the economic equation. Um, and, you know, then you look at it and say, where can an independent be competitive with, you know, the big media companies in the U.S. and around the world? And you look for markets that are emerging, uh, like Russia when I did Russia and China when I did China, you know, doing China now. And where, you know, I use kind of Rupert Murdoch as the symbol of the devil. Um, the symbol of the devil. The devil, yeah. It's like so. I look to go where Rupert can't function uh, to the level Rupert can function anywhere else. Um, yeah, it, it, and I use Rupert kind of as the metaphor for big media, you know, around the world because there really are only you know a half a dozen companies that control most of the media that you know we're fed, particularly here in the U.S. And Rupert being you know a big player in that and. Um, and you, know, you go to a place like China, so not only doesn't he have the kind of foothold uh, that they have, but there's actually a fear of big Western media, where, so they're more welcoming of indies like myself. But you have to ask yourself, I mean, this is a guy, Rupert Murdoch, who's 
wherever he wants to be, he normally can be. So there has to be a reason why he didn't take an initiative there. Why do you think it is? Well, he tried. I mean, he was there. Ruby was there. And then he, you know, uh, when you're a visitor in someone else's house, like you're a visitor in China, uh, my family goes, you got to be respectful of the people whose house it is. When you, you reach a Rupert level, um, you know, to go in there and go, here's the way I do things in Australia. And the Chinese just aren't accepting of that kind of attitude. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but it's like when I used to go to my mother's house in Florida. And I go, Ma, all right, tonight we'll eat at uh, 8 o'clock. We'll go for Italian food. She'd go, no, we're going to eat at 5 o'clock. We'll go to the deli. And I'd say, but, you know, I, I don't eat at 5 o'clock. She goes, well, you, when you're in my house, you eat at 5 o'clock. When you're in China, you're in their house. you got to listen to their rules. You can't just go in and say, this is the way I do it, and this is, therefore, this is the way you do it. Those days are pretty much over. You said something profound, and I think I want you to explain to our audience. You said you were looking at the dynamics of the world and how it worked, and, and it was 90-10 in terms of the United States and Asia or the rest of the world, and then you saw a shift. For you, as somebody in the business who's analyzing the way things are, where do you see the shift? Where are you looking? Is it something you're just guessing because you're seeing different things, or are there certain analytics that you're getting somewhere that's showing it? How do you see it? Um, I, I'm not a great believer in analytics and stuff. I'm, I'm very intuitive. I, I, I think of you know what I see, and I kind of interpret it for myself. But... Um, you've seen the cost of production come way, way down. I mean, you could make TV shows or movies on your laptop now or on your iPhone. Um, so there was a time where, you know, you would have Hollywood movies, Hollywood TV shows would permeate German television or French television or television around the world. But then as the cost came down and as expertise kind of grew, as people began to understand the medium more, you, you, you see local productions that have moved in and replaced the need for always having Hollywood production. Um, you know, you, you see that around the world and in China, you know, we, we see it now where they're, they're trying to get the best practices of Hollywood, but yet create stuff that's native to, to China itself. So um, it's, it's, it's inevitable that you, you've got with the Internet that you're getting this world of media. I mean, now we think of things in, in these very solid geographic boundaries. Um, when you think of how people grow up, a lot of times the way we're shaped is, is a result of the media we consume when we were children. So a lot of the way we think. So when you look at now and you say, okay, a teenage girl in the U.S. is watching Gossip Girl and a teenage girl in China is watching Gossip Girl, don't they have a lot more in common as they grow up than, you know, before when they grew up on totally different media. Um, I, I think you're finding that commonality based on, on the things that people are watching now and their access to things from all over the world. You know, to me, when I think of the best kind of entertainment worldwide that I look at, David Copperfield can work in any country. Yeah. You know, any magician can work in any country. They don't even have to speak. I always thought to myself the best form of entertainment that would be the most seamless to present in any country in the world was animation. 
because the voices can be dubbed. And if you're in that country, you don't even think that they're dubbed. Whereas you look at a regular movie, if it's dubbed, not subtitled, dubbed, it's awkward. So is animation, I'm not talking about anime. I'm talking about like Family Guy or The Simpsons or Shrek. Do those movies and television shows do better in the rest of the world and Asia than regular live action, or am I mistaken? No, I mean, I mean you're right, because those, those shows, can, they can go anywhere in the world, and you know, it looks like the characters speaking the native language, is, you know, depending on how they're drawn, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, animation travels, and, and has historically traveled well. But then you get to things that are a little more based on, you know, the culture of the country they came from. So when you take something like a family guy and stuff, that's a little bit US centric. The nature of that is a little bit US centric. I mean, there, there, there are cultural differences that, um, and one of the things we learned in China is you, you need to really dig into that and understand it. So if I create a TV show here um, in the US, I can have the, um, you know, the, the, the child be disrespectful to their parents or their grandparents. In China, it's unthinkable. I mean, because they grow up so different. Here, you don't know your grandparents. You you live different from them, whatever. In China, they grow up with their grandparents, and the level of respect is just... So you, you really have to pay attention to those things to make them culturally relevant. One of my favorite animated shows growing up, I never got excited about animation that didn't feel real. So the only show that I loved was Johnny Quest. <laughs> And I remember I was in a DVD store and I was so excited because I found a box set of Johnny Quest and bringing it home to my kids and I'm just so excited. I'm going to show them Johnny Quest. And literally six minutes in, they were like, Daddy, can we watch something else? And I realized that, my God, something that I thought was the greatest thing in the world meant nothing to them because of the way the world changed. Take me through a week before you even have a thought about going to China or any territory outside of the United States, what happens besides the looking and seeing the landscape? What happens? And then what's your first step you take that says, okay, this is my action plan. This is my thought process of how I can become successful. This is what I'm going to do. And this is how I'm going to assemble the blueprint to be successful there? First of all, remember, before China, I was in Russia for a long time. So, uh, uh, you know, a lot of Americans in particular, but, you know, certainly a lot of Westerners, you know, we have this uh, this fear of communism. It's like communism is the boogeyman, you know, they're going to come out of the closet and, and eat us and stuff. Uh, it's a total misconception of what a lot of it is. So I had spent 10 years, 12 years, doing a lot of stuff in Russia. So I, I was kind of free of that misconception so I understood and what percentage of your daily and yearly and annual work was Russia versus the United States I, I was I started in Russia while I was still at ease so you know probably 20% Russia and 80% US but then again you know in in E we grew very quickly um, into other countries so in the first year, I think we, we expanded to 14 other countries. So I began to kind of pay attention to the rest of the world 
And when you expanded to other countries, were there co-hosts from that country or did you keep the same co-host and just... At the beginning, it was the same. I mean, we didn't have a lot of money, so we didn't, we couldn't do a lot of stuff. But we basically used the same programming with, you know, in just those countries. Okay, so you're in Russia and you're doing things in Russia. I remember Phil Rosenthal, who created Everybody Loves Raymond, telling me that he got the call from somebody in Russia to do an Everybody Loves Raymond in Russia, and he did a documentary on how he put that all together. It was a great show. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. So I, I, so I didn't have that fear of communism. And then I, uh, when I started looking and saying to myself, okay, what's next? Um, I, I started doing a lot of just reading about different places and read a lot about China, and you know, it just became apparent that it was going to be a huge economic force. Uh, it already had become a huge economic force, and that trend would just continue. Uh, and in many ways, they would surpass the U.S. in, in theatrical box office and size of the economy and things like that. And it, there were no American companies that were fully entrenched there. So I couldn't look at it and say, okay, Warner dominates the market or Rupert dominates the market. The market was wide open. So I said, okay, that's a place I can go in and I can be competitive with anybody. Um, okay, so it's wide open. When you start analyzing and really looking at the entertainment that's going on on a day-to-day -day basis in media in South Asia and then and, and, and really looking at it. What did you find was there, besides the language, what were the differences in their television versus our television? Well, you know, first realized that at one point everything was 100% state-dominated, state-dictated television. So, um, it, it, it was really not commercial in, in the sense that you would try and get the biggest audience. It was um, delivering the message of, of the state. And then that was changing because they realized, the government realized that if you really want to develop an internal consumer economy, you got to create media that is at least a little bit familiar to Western marketers, meaning you know, TV ads are 30 seconds and not whatever you feel like today. And if you hire tomorrow, you just don't do any. Um, so they were going through that transition phase, which I had actually gone through in Russia. Um, so again, it was kind of familiar to me. Um, and, uh, and I could pretty much predict the patterns of how things would, would happen there. The, the easiest thing to do is take someone else's programming and dub it or subtitle it. And that's usually the first wave. The, the second wave is usually modification of forms. So you take things like American Idol and you create China Idol. Uh, the third is to create really unique formats that are focused on that particular culture and just work in that culture, maybe not work anyplace else in the world. So the real creativity comes in phase three, where the first is just take it, lift it, or pirate it. The second is modification, and the third is creativity. So what was your philosophy going in? What was the first thing that you said, hey, this is my easiest point of entry? You know, for me, I, I, when I looked at it, I said, okay, why have most American companies failed? And that's because we try to go in and say, okay, here's the way we do in the U.S. or here's what we do in the U.S. and just kind of force it on, on the Chinese. Um, China was very different than Russia in in the sense that 
in, in Russia and Eastern Europe, everybody either wanted to move to America, marry an American, be an American, or whatever. Uh, Chinese were very happy to be Chinese. They wanted to learn about the West. They wanted to understand our customs and our history and our, our ways, but they didn't necessarily want to move here and marry an American. Um, so I realized that what in order to, to really be different there and, and to get a foothold, I would have to program in Mandarin, not in English. So I just we just said we're making stuff for the Chinese audience in their language, and we were the only ones who were doing that. Everybody else was just taking friends and stuff and subtitling them and stuff like that. So you're casting actors from there? You're Just decided we're going to do everything in Chinese. Here's an odd question. Are you casting... Chinese people here and producing the programming here and then satelliting it or shipping there? Or are you going to the country and shooting the episodes there? A combination of the two. So you take the first shows that we did. So the first one, the low-hanging fruit for me was Hello, Hollywood. So you take a show like E! News Daily, but you then customize that to the Chinese audience. So, and again, the audiences are very different there. So it's not just government regulations. It's what is the audience looking for? So, and for me, you know, to do, you know, E, e was very much a celebration of the, the entertainment industry. It wasn't mean-spirited. It, it wasn't TMZ, let's catch someone cheating on their wife and expose them. And Except for Joan Rivers. Joan was pretty mild when you think about it. Joan was funny, but, you know. She wasn't looking to destroy people's lives. That wasn't her mission. Even when they had the worst dress? And... Yeah, but that was fun. That was not, you know. I mean, worst dress versus, hey, we caught you with another woman last night. Does your wife know? I mean, there's a difference. Let's pretend it's that time with Joan and the crew you had there then at that time, the whole crew. And let's pretend the story breaks with Harvey Weinstein. How is E back then? How did they cover it? Well, I, I mean, I think we, we would have tried and cover it um, as, as we would have approached it as objectively as we could. I mean, as opposed to let's find some deeper dirt. I think now it's let's find the deeper dirt and, and, and stuff like that. So I think that's the objective. We would have tried to cover it more objectively, I think. Like with OJ. You know, it wasn't like let's convict him, it was like, let's dig into the story. So here in the U.S., if we were going to interview Tom Cruise, you know, we go, so tell us about, you know, Scientology and that, da, 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 da. In China, the audience wants to know, okay, we're going to interview Tom Cruise, what do we want to hear? And it's, what do you do with the kids on the weekend? So it's much sweeter, much now. It may change in 10 years, but right now, it's it was very much in line with where Alan and I were with E at the early time, which is celebrate the industry. Um, so we cover stuff. So I have crews here in LA, Chinese, mm -hmm. uh, bilingual, bicultural. They run around and they go to the parties and the premieres and they interview people and they, they do all of that stuff. And, um, and then we, but it's all done in Mandarin. It's, we'll interview someone in English and obviously we'll subtitle them. But the host will then turn and talk to the audience in, in Mandarin. And the second show? And the second show was a drama, um, which we did. It was like a young urban drama, kind of like an OC. So here, when you're creating a drama in the United States for television, a network will oftentimes, they'll reach out to their standards, somebody who has already created a successful drama somewhere and ask them to create another one or bring them another one 
or they'll look towards the co-executive producer on a great show who they know is capable of creating something but hasn't gotten their shot and we'll go to that when you're in china how do you find the showrunner who creates the show? Well, first of all, there's not a lot of history. So, you know, you look for people you think are talented. And again, you know, coming out of the Hollywood world, um, you know, there was kind of a little bit of faith that I knew how to create television that people actually watched. Um, so, you know, we, we found people that we thought were, um, who got it. Who understood what it does, and the but, process is not all that much different. You find you find cast and 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 things like that, and so it it was it was not as difficult as you may think. There are dramas, but don't forget these were state sponsored. The technical things of building a TV show those those were there, and then you know by throwing in me and my team, which are basically Chinese. Um, you know, we bring kind of that pop culture nature to it and make it a little more audience friendly and stuff like that. But the other thing in China, you got to remember the costs are much less. So you can, you could experiment, you could make more mistakes. Here, like one of the reasons, if I want to do a, a pilot of a show, I mean, it's like crazy. It's like pilot of a great drama. It's typical for somebody like Sony, who is the only studio that's independent in television, really, of the CBS productions, the NBC productions, all. And they typically spend an average of seven million for a drama pilot, which is 41 minutes and 30 seconds long. Right. We can pilot that in China for 300,000. 300,000. Yeah. And it'll look the same. Technically, yeah. I mean, we have to polish the writing and go back and clean it up. But yeah, you know, it's not all that much different. Why don't the networks here, you know how businesses, okay, we're going to put our plant in Mexico. We're going to put our plant here. We're going to do that. Why don't the entertainment companies here take their productions over to China and just do every movie and television show over there and ship it back here? Uh, not smart. Uh, for one. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you what we, we do there now and how our business has evolved. Um, we think of it exactly that way. I mean, to be an independent, I can't compete here. I can't do $7 million pilots and in order to get one sold, you got to make 10 I mean, what independent could go $70 million in the hole? That's why you don't have a lot of independence here. But in China, we, we looked at it. If you were a Broadway producer, you're not going to take your idea and go straight to Broadway where it's incredibly expensive. And you, you know you've got to work out the kinks of it, but you don't want to do it under the eye of the New York Times. That's true. So where do you go? You go off Broadway or you go to Connecticut. So we look at China in a lot of ways as being our Connecticut. So we come up with ideas. We could debug them, work on them there as formats. Um, and we're actually rolling out the first one on, you know, on this theory uh, of a show called The Bruce Lee Project, which is a reality show. So it's, um, it's, it's kind of like Survivor, but based on the philosophies of Bruce Lee. So it's not fighting. It's not finding the next Bruce Lee. It's who best exemplifies the things that Bruce stood for and believed in. And, and that's his daughter who runs that company now? Or his daughter is one of our partners. So Keanu Reeves is one partner, and, and Shannon Lee is the other, and she brings the estate with her. But here we have the opportunity to debug, to create the show there, debug it, 
get it to work, and then take the format and sell the format to other countries, which we've now done. I mean, the Bruce Lee Project, without a pilot and without a sales team, we've now sold nine countries um, with the show. So the idea that you could use China for more than making coffee cups or, you know, cheap clothing or something is is something we've we've kind of taken that on. But using world-class people. So the people who did our production design did the voice. The people who did our engineering did the Olympics. Um, so that you give it world-class stature so people can't just look and go, oh, that's Chinese, you know, it's not good. Um, so we're getting formats out of there. We're now working on some scripted drama um, that again could play all Asia. Uh, and um, Have you thought about coming up with a great idea that's an American concept with American actors and doing a half hour pilot there for $150,000 and bringing it here and trying to sell it here? And yeah, we've been thinking of it, and a lot of um, there are a lot of issues with facilities. And now, when you, you're going to do something that's just American, you've got to start thinking of shipping people there. You know, can you, if you're doing a movie or, or something, and it's going to be a six week thing, how many people really want to go and you know be away from their family and live in China? So there are obstacles, but the, the answer to the question is yes. We have been thinking about it, and we continue to think about it because it makes all the sense in the world. So you decide you're going to South Asia, and you have to assemble a team. You've assembled a team for Russia, but you never assembled a team for this area. You have to go into meetings. Sometimes you have to have an interpreter. You have to have people in the right seats on the bus, but these are different seats than you're used to having here. How do you find great people to help you succeed in another country that you know really nothing or very little about? And also give them the blueprint to help them be successful when you're not really that knowledgeable about the area. Well, we, we first looked for somebody who was Chinese to become one of the partners in, in the Meitan structure. Um, so uh, we, we found a woman... Uh, born and raised in China, came to the U.S., got her two graduate degrees here, uh, and then decided to move back to Beijing. So we brought her into the partnership. When you say we, who's we? And myself and Marty Pompadour. Um, Marty uh, was the chairman of News Corp Europe. He was, he was actually Rupert's partner uh, for many years, and before that he was with ABC, going back to the Lenny Goldenson days. Um, so it was Marty and I and, and a friend of ours from, from Russia. Uh, we were the, the nucleus, and we, we spent time looking for, we said we have to have a local Chinese partner who we trusted and could provide that, that local knowledge um, there. But then from there, and again, it's, it's, a lot of it is just logical. It's say, okay, we got to find people who are not just bilingual, but got to be a little bit bicultural. Because we want them to understand China, but we want, want them to understand best practices of the U.S. media business. So we made a very concerted effort. We recruited out of UCLA and USC, typically grad, grad school kids, who the, the parameters, you had to be born in mainland. You had to go to school at least four years outside of China, and you had to want to return to mainland. So we didn't want you to want to stay here. We could get people who want to stay here all day long. But we want people that we could work with and then send back there. So we would take the, the smartest kids we could find, give them intern jobs, 
than take the smartest of the interns and give them real jobs. They would work for two years here and then go back to China. So basically, we populated the China operation with people that we really recruited and trained. Are you the kind of guy who's hands-on when it comes to the people that are brought into the fold, even interns, do you meet with them to make sure that they're the kind of person that you want, or do you wait till they're there and then you interview them after they've done their time as an intern? It's very hands-on there. But then once you get that level, let's say, you know, right below me, and you, and you feel comfortable that they understand what the mission is. And, and the other thing that's very interesting is they got to understand the sensibility. Um, because my sense, my sensibility is different than, than a lot of people. I mean, if you think of early E, um, you know, things like talk soup and stuff, it, we didn't really take the business all that seriously. I don't really take many things all that seriously. It's, you know, basically Hollywood is funny shit. Don't try and make believe it's something different than it is. Um, and, and that's really one of the hardest things I have to do in, in any company that I'm involved with is get people to understand that this is not rocket science and it's supposed to be fun and stuff like that. So once I'm comfortable that the people who are working directly with me kind of get it, then I'm real comfortable letting them choose the, the people that they are comfortable with, you know, underneath them. And it's worked out pretty well. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey everybody, I am really, really excited. We have a sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over a hundred chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section, 
you'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine and 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com and you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. I want to go way, 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 way back. Take me back where you were born, where you grew up, what the socioeconomic dynamic was, what your family was like, how everything was, what your situation was, and then what was your first inspiration in your life that made you want to be in the entertainment business? Uh, sure. Um, in case you couldn't tell by the accent, grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, and then you've never heard Mandarin spoken until you heard it with a Brooklyn accent. <laughs> Um, but, um, you've learned it seamlessly. No, I'm terrible <laughs> at it. And, you know, it sounds like a, a Jersey gangster trying to order in a Chinese restaurant. Are you now attracted to only Asian women? Uh, no, I'm attracted to all women. <laughs> uh, still, we have something in common. Um, but the, um, uh, you know, grew up in very humble beginnings. My father drove a Pepsi Cola truck. Uh, really? My mother worked for the Department of Social Services in New York. Um, I was the first person in the family ever to go to college. My, my father's family, they were immigrants. My mother's family came from Siberia. My father's came from Turkey. Um, and, um, you know, they were just... Siberia? Yeah. My mother's family was from Siberia. My mother was born in the U.S. Okay. My mother was born in Siberia. And my father's parents were born in Turkey, and my father was born. You know, for those of you too young listening to this podcast, one of the funny things I'd hear growing up as a child, my mother would say, you're lucky. In your country, you do something bad, we just send you to your room. In Russia, they send you to Siberia. Oh, yeah. Um, and when I started going to Russia, I got a lot of interesting comments from the family about why I shouldn't go, but... Anyway, but so, you know, I grew up in, in that kind of world, and my parents in that generation, they were very much like they were going to work two jobs, three jobs, didn't make a difference. Their kids were going to have a better life than they had. I mean, and that was their mission. That was what they felt their mission in life was for. And, um, and they did that. You know, they worked uh, very, very hard. I was the first kid to go to, to college. So we grew up in what... I later learned it was a poor neighborhood. I didn't know it was a poor neighborhood when I grew up in it. Really? Yeah. I grew up in Coney Island. In my neighborhood, this is what my parents would do. This is a typical thing that they do. You'd take the Sunday drive and you'd be with your parents and they'd drive you through the neighborhoods that were the great neighborhoods. Ooh, look at that house. Ooh, look at that house on the hill. We're never going to fucking live there. Oh, and they didn't do that in Coney Island? You rich. You had a car. Uh, we we would yeah we would do that and stuff and you know I I but again I didn't realize I, I grew up happy my parents were great my you know the neighborhood was great everything was good um, and um, I I ended up going to a high school that you know again it's a public high school in this poor neighborhood um, that interesting and nobody could really figure out why to this day. There are more Nobel Prize winners that have come from my high school than any of our high school in America. Um, and there's no rhyme or reason to it other than maybe something in the water or, 
or, or something. But you know, if you look for the commonality, most of us we were we were kids of World War II parents. Most of us had immigrant. What happened in Coney Island to where it went from the greatest, most exciting place you could ever imagine with more people to this day? You can't go anywhere in the world and find a beach that's that populated and that crazy. What was the shift that happened where it went from the greatest to ghost town? Well, it was, it was you know, one point, it, I mean, it was the first major amusement park built in the U.S. So people from all over the metropolitan area would come, people from all over the world would hear about Coney Island and they would go. But then, you know, as time went on, uh, Disneyland started. You know, and then these theme parks in New Jersey. So people began to have other places that they could go that were closer, more convenient, so that the traffic into Coney Island went down. You, you couple that with poor urban planning. I mean, here you had this magnificent beach, and they did nothing with it. You know, and they built the uh, you know low income projects and stuff like that. So the crime rate was really high. So you you have alternatives to going to a place that's hard to get to and where there's a lot of crime, so the, 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 the people started going other places, really. So you go to college. What's your major in college? Uh, so my major in college was um, economics. Um, I took five years uh, to get through. Um, so, yeah, so I ended up with a degree in economics. Thought I would teach, um, originally thinking teach uh, history or economics at high school and um, you know, did my student teaching and very quickly realized that the city of New York Board of Education and I didn't necessarily share the same view of what was going on in the world in history and stuff like that. This is 60s Vietnam War time and, you know, all of that. And um, just you know, realized that teaching thing was not going to work out and say, okay, what do you do with the economics degree? There wasn't all that much you could do with it. So I was... Um, uh, saying, okay, I want to find kind of a mindless job uh, for the summer until I figure out what you do with the, the economics degree. So somebody um, uh, introduced me to somebody who's in the electricians union, um, the IBEW, and said, oh, we organized this thing called cable. I don't know really what it is, but go see this guy. You know, so I went there and yeah, I said, I need a job. And they said, well, the union sent you, so we have to give you a job, but you know, we don't like you college kids around here, and you know. Um, but they gave me a job that they figured I would quit really quick. They gave me a job working under the streets of Manhattan, splicing the cables together. So you used to go at 8 o'clock in the morning, you'd open up the manhole, you would go down, you'd be with all the rats and the cockroaches, and you'd sit there, put cables together. Uh, I guess they were waiting for me to leave, but I just didn't leave, and is there a lower job in the entertainment business than splicing cables underneath the ground with rats and cockroaches? Well, actually, I thought I was the assistant splicer. I, wasn't <laughs> I didn't want to have to hand the tools to that guy who knew what he was doing. Then I became a splicer. So. Do you remember when you first saw your first rat underground? Uh, I try not to think about it. <laughs> um, you know, in terms of, you know, Fulfilling my wish to just find something mindless, that was about as mindless as you could So, get. So they thought you'd quit. Why didn't you? Well, because I, I just started, you know, they would look at me and they go, hey, kid, how did you learn how to use that blah, blah, blah piece of equipment? 
you know, and I go, I uh, read the instructions, and they were like fascinated. I mean, not only was I the only one with college, I think I might have been the only one with even high school there. And I, I just kind of became fascinated with it. And, you know, when they realized that I knew how to use stuff before much quicker than anybody else, they said, okay, so now your assistant splicer will make you the splicer, and then you could be like the supervisor of this life so they just kept promoting me and what was your first job above ground um so i i ended up um then they went from there and i went to service where i would go to people's houses and fix their cable if it was broken and and then what happened was um time incorporated bought the company the company was first owned by a guy named chuck dolan and it was actually called sterling manhattan uh, cable um and um I started, you know, doing uh, a lot of a lot of stuff there, and the somebody in in human resources timing bought the company, and so you kind of had all these Yale and Harvard guys sitting up in Sixth Avenue, wondering what these people did from this company that they bought, and uh, so somebody in HR said, "Wait a second, there's a guy there with an economics degree," you know. At least we know he speaks English, and you know. <laughs> so I, I, I quickly became kind of an interface between those, those two different cultures. Of course, I knew what those guys did when they opened the manholes and went underground. And um, you know, eventually, somebody from Time Inc. Uh, you know, said, "Hey, we want you to leave the union and go into management." And I was going, "No, no, 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 no." You know, I said, "That's not safe." I said, "I'm safe in the union. I'm not going." But they ended up making a deal and getting me to, to, to move to management. So then I became like, then I became the head of customer service, uh, then I, the head of construction, you know, the guys who did all that. And then eventually I became the head of operations there. So, but I think by the, I was 26, I was the head of operations in Manhattan and had like 300 of those guys working for me and stuff like that. And they like working with me because I knew what their job was, you know, I was sympathetic to their plight. So from the moment you did your first day as the assistant splicer underground with the rats and the cockroaches to your first day in the manager of customer service overseeing 300 people, how long a period of time was that? It was a little over four years. Incredible. Yeah, but it, it was good, and you know, and I and I I became fascinated. I'm, I'm a naturally curious person, so I would read a lot, and then I really began to start to ponder and saying, okay, you know, initially though those wires are meant to give people good reception, and then you know we um, we started saying, okay, we could do more than good reception. We could give them more choices. How many choices were there then? When I started with twelve. Twelve. Yeah, went from twelve. The big jump was to seventeen. You know, so in Manhattan, that was the thing. We were offering 17 channels on, you know. On. And how much did it cost to get those channels? I think it was like $8. Sir. You said you work with great people. Who were the great people you so, worked with? You know, I, I worked, I, I ended up with the guy that I considered my mentor was a guy named Nick Nicholas, uh, who then went on to become the president of Time Warner. Uh, Jerry Levin, who started Home Box Office. Um, there, there were just so many you know, really fabulous. I, I worked for a guy named Frank Chiano, who's the, the vice president of operations and stuff. And he was a great, you know, mentor to me in just management style and, you know, how you pick your times to be tough and when you need to be soft. And, Tell our audience some of the things that they shared with you 
as you were moving up the ranks that helped you get where you were going? Uh, to, to understand that the people that are working for your people and, you know, that they're going to have things going on in their life that, you know, you, you don't want to continue, but sort of make you, you got to be a little bit understanding that, you know, somebody could have a bad day and it didn't mean they were a bad person or a bad employee that you, you kind of had to really look at it you know, on a, a deeper level and to not just measure, go, okay, you fell short of quota today. You know, it's like, what what happened today that made you feel short, fall short? Uh, Nick Nicholas probably, you know, had the most profound thing. You know, when I asked him about something, you know, he said, you know, the, the object of being a manager, is you can always be tough, but everybody has to understand that you're fair. So, and that's kind of what I did. It's no matter what my decisions were, no matter how adversely they may affect you know, people, because sometimes you had to make cuts and things like that. I, I just always was very conscious to make sure that when people looked at it, they realized it was fair. Um, and that's probably the overriding uh, thing. But, you know, so I I, I ended up in, in that Manhattan cable world. Um, and then the, the parent company, Time Inc., decided they wanted to um, branch out from being basically a print company, a public publication company uh, to being a media company. Uh, so things started, you know, around me like Home Box Office and Cinemax and uh, we started buying up cable companies from around the country and growing beyond the Manhattan border. And uh, So for me, it was just a great time to be there because I got to do stuff very young um, where a typical person in that timing family might have had to be 50 by the time they got to have the level of authority that I was having at 26 or 27. Um, and there was just so much going on. You know, one day, like the guy, Jerry Levin, will walk in and go, uh, we're going to do, uh, we're renting these things called satellites, and we're going to beam programming all around the country. You know, you look at them and go, what's a satellite, you know? And so it's just, it was a great time to be there. Uh, so sometimes you got to be a little bit lucky. Incredible. So then what was your next promotion to get on the other side of the world of this business? Well, you, what happened from there was um, I, they eventually made me the, the head of corporate development. And I was tasked with finding other ways to use that cable wire other than just providing more programming. <clears throat> so I started doing data communications. We started working with these, these things called fax machines and connecting one uptown and one downtown, and they could send pictures to each other. And uh, Do you still use a fax machine? No. <laughs> no, not at all. I don't even use printers anymore. Look at the bright side. You're not in the fax machine business. That, that's for sure. So, you know, we, we, we really uh, got to look at how technology was impacting, you know, the society and stuff. And that's really what I was charged with at the end, I, given... I, they were sending me out to think tanks and stuff like that to really look at saying, okay, where is technology going and, and how does that basically change the way society gets involved with, with technology? So it really kind of opened up my, my thinking into what more could be done. Um, and this was pre-internet, of course, and we never imagined the internet back in those days. But, you know, because now you kind of get to the late 70s, you know, right at the beginning of the 80s, all of a sudden, all these cities around the country started going, oh, this cable thing looks pretty good. We need to put cable in. So all the big cities began to issue franchises. 
but one of the things they wanted in most cities was they didn't want the cable to go on the telephone poles the way it usually went around the country. They wanted it all to go under the ground. Well, the only person who ever built an underground cable system was me. Um, so I found myself being recruited by companies all around the country going, oh, why don't you come here, come to Atlanta, come to Cincinnati, come here, you know, we need someone who knows how, to, how you build an underground cable system. So I, I ended up getting contacted by a company, it was a Canadian company, that had won the franchise for the San Fernando Valley out here. And, you know, they called me and I said, listen, I'm a New York kid, I don't go to California, you know, it's like voodoo and witch doctors and stuff like that. And... Um, I, I said no, and the guy said, "Well, you know, the you know, what are you doing this weekend?" I said, "I, I don't know what I normally do." He said, "You got a girlfriend?" I went, "Yeah." He goes, "Okay, I'll fly you and your girlfriend out first class, put you in the Bel Air Hotel. I need an hour." I went, "Okay, as long as you understand, there's no way I'm ever going to move to California." He goes, "Okay, great." So I, I came out here, and you know, at the end of the one hour, and you know, I'm being a bit of an ass, going, okay, you know, you got 10 seconds, nine, eight, seven. And finally, you know, he just said to me, he goes, well, what would it take for you to move out here? And so I just threw out a number like four times what I was making in New York. And he goes, that's crazy. He goes, I go, you're right. Bye. I'm gone. And, you know, I go back to New York. And, you know, then I said to my girlfriend at the time, I said, you know, see, California was kind of nice. I like that weather. And, um, you know, we went back and I didn't really think much about it. And then it was kind of a, we were in the winter. The guy gave up. No, he, he called back like two weeks later and said, okay, listen, what well, you asked what was outrageous, but I'm prepared to offer you this. And he offered me twice what I was making. And just without even thinking, I go, listen, I wasn't negotiating. You asked me what it would take. I told you what it would take. That's it. And I hung up. And then I went, what did I just do? The power of the power of no. And then um, two weeks later, he called back and said, okay, it's totally outrageous, but how quick could you be here? I was like, uh, 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 <laughs> you know, then I had my foot in my mouth. <clears throat> I just, you know, said, uh, I don't know, two weeks. So he goes, great. So I, that's how I ended up in California. But you've been with this other company for many, many years. The first company. Yeah, ten and and ten years, and they've been good to you, and they love you, Best and they, in the pension fund. You're in the pension fund. You have mentors. They brought you along. They trusted you, and then one day you just walk in and say, "You know what? I'm giving my two week notice." No, it was actually better than that. I I was um, I was going to work. It was like one of those days. It was like the day after a snow. New York, the day of a snow is great. You know, it's all white. It's beautiful. The day after, it's black cookie. <laughs> So I'm, I got my suit on and my tie, and I'm walking to work, and a cab comes by and splashes <laughs> this black shit all over me, and you know, and it's cold. And I just was going, "What am I doing here?" And I just went to work. I walked into my boss, this guy Frank, and I said, "Frank, listen, I quit." He goes, "What's wrong now?" He goes, "You need a new office chair." I go, "No." I said, "I'm done. I'm out." And he goes, "Think about it." I go, "I already thought about it. I'm gone." And I left. Now let's reverse roles here. Let's pretend you're Frank. You have a guy who you've taken from the depths of internship and has walked and worked with you and you've been his mentor for 10 years. And he walks into your office and he says, I'm done. I've already thought about it. I'm done. How do you feel? 
well, I think he was just there. He thought, until he saw me not come to work one day, I think he thought I was kidding that, um, you know, I wasn't going I was never really considered, you know, the, this, the typical exec there. I was always a little bit off. Um, so, you know, I think he just thought that I was just going through a moody thing and that I really wouldn't leave. And I, I went to 14th Street in Manhattan, bought a trunk, threw my clothes in it, and left. And that was it. So when when I came out here, so I they, I got the job, this general manager of Valley Cable, which is going to be the first 61-channel two-way system ever built. And for me, it was great because now I got to do more than the operations side. You know, because now I had finance reported to me and marketing reported to me and programming reported to me. And the company I work with really hell-bent on um, revolutionizing cable programming. So I had a lot of leeway to create stuff and, and to really get deeply into cable programming. Um, and we were actually nominated, not nominated, we were actually, Forbes magazine named us the national model for cable programming, a little local cable system. Um, and uh, we did all kinds of stuff, we, you know, from school stuff to political stuff to uh, blending in with the Hollywood community and, and just a lot of, lot of interesting stuff. So I, that's where I really got to broaden. And, you know, at that time we were doing 61 channels and there really there weren't 61 channels in existence. So you had to get these character generators, which would do text. And we would have the library channel, the school lunch channel, the lost kitten channel. And so you go, okay, you have the capacity to do 61. What are you going to put on these 61? Uh, and that's what really started making me think. And one of the things that, um, you know, happened here, uh, you know, L.A. is very entertainment industry centric. Either you're in it or your neighbor's in it and stuff like that. And I started seeing people going to like movie premieres and screenings. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. How do you go to those? They go, well, you got to be in the industry. And I'm like, well, I'm in the industry. They go, no, you're not. You're in the cable business. <laughs> and, you know, they likened it to being in, you know, the telephone business. You know, you put the wires together and you and do that. Nobody took it very seriously then. So, um, you know, we just called up, um, I called up people at the studio. I said, I want to get on those lists. I want to go. They go, eh, you're not in the business. So I said, what do you need? They go, well, you know, I don't know. I said, well, okay, you have these movie trailers that the only time I ever get to see them is when I go to the movies. Seems a bit ass backwards. Don't you want to show me the movie trailer when I'm in my house to make me want to go to the movies? They went, yeah, but it's like too expensive to buy two minutes of time. I go, okay, you send me those. I'll edit them together and we'll put them on TV for free, but you got to give me passes to go to those movie screenings. And they said, yeah, sure, we'll do that. So we literally, I hired a kid for three bucks an hour and he edited movie trailers together and we made a, an hour loop of movie trailers. And when we started, um, you know, doing a little bit of market research and saying to people, what's your favorite channel? They go, oh, I love CNN, I love ESPN, I love that movie trailer channel. Yeah, I got no. Wait a second. They're giving me the best two minutes of a fifty million dollars, then fifty million dollars movie for free, and people say it's their favorite channel. And boing, light bulb. And then what happened was um, the the company I work for, which is a Canadian company, they um, 
they bid on 17 franchises in the United States, figuring they'll win two or three. So they won, they won uh, the, the San Fernando Valley, but then they, won, they ended up winning the first 16. And the bank finally came to them and said, hey, guys, you know, your company's 98% debt. You got to put some money in it. And they didn't have enough money to put it in there. So they sold. <clears throat> and they said, oh, Larry, come, you know, come work for us in Toronto. And I was like, well, 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 I didn't go from New York to L.A. to go to Toronto. So I just said, no, I'm staying in L.A. So then my friend Alan and I, Alan Marufka, who ended up, you know, we partnered in me, uh, we were just coming up with ideas of things to do. And, you know, he was going, how come somebody doesn't do MTV or the movies? And I was going, wait a second. So instead of doing Madonna has a new video, I can find someone like Greg Kinnear to go and Schwarzenegger has a new movie. I go, boing. You know, so we just wrote a business for, well, what it then was called Movie Time. Um, and, uh, and that was actually the first name of the network. Yeah. How long was E! Entertainment Movie we, we changed it to because we were broadening beyond just movies to all forms of entertainment. So we changed it in 90, I think. I mean, no one in our audience really or very few know how and what it takes to create a network, put a business plan together, and then have the financial facilities to launch the network and populate the network with celebrities and people and putting an infrastructure together. The business plan for movie time, which then became e-entertainment, what was the budget to get the whole thing launched and on the air with programming? Well, you know, if I would have really understood it, then I probably wouldn't have done it. But, you know, we just said, this is a great idea, of course. You know, the, the thing that people were saying at that time, the, the, the common phrase for cable, was cable TV is like an electronic newspaper. And you know, said, okay, so CNN is the headline, ESPN is the sports, home shopping is the classifieds. And Alan and I just kept going, but the second most read section in the newspaper are the entertainment pages, and that's missing. You know, so that's kind of what we focused on, was that we were going to be the entertainment pages. Of but it costs money to do this. Where did well, the money come from? So we, <laughs> uh, we, we looked at it, and that time... The going rate to start a TV network was about sixty million, six zero. What year is this? This in eighty four. Sixty million in eighty four. What's the price now to launch a network? It's about three fifty. So you know it's going to take sixty million to launch the network. Clearly, you don't have sixty million, right. so you have to find other people's money to help launch it. How do you do it? Well, yeah. So we, um, so we wrote this business plan, and we spent three and a half years going around with people saying, this is a great idea, but you know Rupert Murdoch. Uh, you know, you're not Ted Turner. You can't, you know, people just don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to start a TV network. People don't just wake up in the morning and be Ted Turner or Rupert Murdoch either. And, uh, but we, you know, weren't smart enough to take their advice. You know, normally you just go, okay, whatever. But anyway, we, we ended up, um, shows you how the world works. We ended up meeting a guy who worked for Warner Communications. And he said, well, you know, this is really not for us. He says, but what do you guys need? We said, well, we don't have any money. He goes, well, there's a bank on Wall Street that used to be a bond house. And they just started investment banking. And the guy that's in charge is, a, I know him, here's his name, 
call him up, tell him I said he should take a meeting with you and listen to what you want to do. And, um, you know, Alan and I were like looking at each other going, yeah, I got another wild goose chase. Uh, you know, this was three and a half years in. And um, anyway, so we're, we're, we go into the guy's office at a meeting in New York and um, young guy and he's got movie posters on the wall. And Alan and I just kind of looked at each other and go, no, this is too weird. And we're talking to him. He goes, oh, I used to be the entertainment reporter in my college newspaper. And we're going like, really? So we go through the thing. He goes, I love this. He goes, I want to do it. We go, great. You'll give us 60 million. He goes, I'm only allowed to sign for two and a half. I go, what am I going to do with two and a half million dollars? It costs 60. He goes, I'm only allowed to sign for two and a half. I go, but it costs 60. He goes, what do you want to do? I go, how fast can you give me the two and a half? So they they gave us two and a half million dollars. Um, I had a friend who was teaching radio, television, and film at University of Texas in Austin. And I called him up. I said, Brian, you got a lot of kids in the intern jobs? He goes, yeah, we got a lot. Why? I said, could you like put them on a bus and send them to LA? So he sent me 31 interns from UT Texas. So we started the company with 11 employees and 31 interns. And, um, you know, at that point, uh, you know, television was very polished and whatever. We didn't have any money. So we just had to be very inventive in what we did. So we realized that we, we weren't, we had no effect on the movies being made. We're not going to make $50 million movies and stuff. The movies would be whatever they are. But what was really key was finding hosts that people either would love or hate, but they would have to feel something about. And everybody kind of says to us, oh, you were so lucky you had those great hosts at the beginning. You know, our beginning host was Greg Kinnear, went on to the Academy Award. Julie Moran, first woman to do Wide World of Sports. <clears throat> Mark DiCarlo did studs. Um, uh, you know, on, on and on and on. Um, and uh, uh, the um, people don't realize that to get the first four hosts, we put 7,200 on tape. And who was your number one draft choice after looking at 72? If, if you had to pick one, who was the was first Greg one? Kinnear. It was Greg. And, and it was, you know, it's funny because the, the Greg Kinnear story is quite interesting because I would, I would go around to all these companies and pitch them on advertising for us. And um, I, you know, it's a, a network that's about movies and entertainment. It'd be a good place to advertise movies and entertainment. So I would go to big companies, small companies, didn't make a difference. So one day I was supposed to go to a, a company that's making these little monster movies. You know, they do three $25,000 horror films a year. And it was a rainy day and I go in and the receptionist says, oh, we've been trying to call your office and tell you not to come. Mr. Smith, the head of marketing, didn't come in today. He's sick. And I said, oh, I came straight from my house. I never went to the office. I said, is there anybody here who can make a decision? She goes, no. I go, okay, good, I'm leaving. So then I'm going, you know what, I'm here, it's raining, could I just leave the stuff? Does he have an assistant? He says, yeah, so they introduced me to this young kid named Greg Kinnear. And I'm going through the whole pitch with him. He was the assistant. He was the assistant. And, um, you know, he just... Had he ever had any aspirations of being on television? Oh, yeah, he had a lot of aspirations. And I'd be in the middle of the pitch, you go, well, who's going to be the host? I go, well, we're interviewing. You know, two seconds later, I'd say, yeah, we can put you next to the Madonna video. And then I, well, who's going to be the host? I go, we're interviewing. And he said, can I interview? I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, go go see Eileen. She'll, uh, 
she'll put it on tape. And um, uh, it was a woman named Eileen Graham who was putting on tape. And I basically said to Eileen, I said, this guy's coming in next Tuesday at 2 o'clock. I said, I don't even care if you have filming the camera, you know, just be nice. We're trying to sell them advertising. And, um, you know, I mean, again, we had no money, you know, and I'm trying to figure out how I make payroll on Friday. You know, and Eileen says, oh, that guy's here. He wants to say hello. I said, yeah, tell him. I said, well, you know, and if you come in two minutes later, she said, well, he's really adamant. He wants to say hello. I said, hello. And she goes, no, he wants to see you. I go, Eileen, I'm trying to figure out how I pay you in two days. You know, leave me alone. So she comes back later. She says, all right, we're taking him in the studio. We're ready to start. Do you want to come in? And I go, no, I'm like really busy. You know, and then she comes back and she says, Larry, you come in the studio. I go, no, Eileen, I'll kill you. She, she literally took, takes me by the ear and she goes, I'm telling you to come in the studio. And I go, Eileen, you bitch, I'm going to kill you. And she goes, come in the studio. So I go in the studio like mumbling in the hallway, you know. Like, now, presumably, she'd already seen him do it, and she was blown away, and she wanted you to see it again. I walk in, she cued him, and I'm going, I lean you. Holy shit. I just looked at him, and I said, oh, my God, hire him. And I walked out, and that was it. it was, he, he lit the camera. The second the camera went on, the camera lit up, and you just you knew it from the first moment. Did Greg create Talk Soup, or did we created that for Greg? And again, we we had no money, so we had a, you know. And again, my sensibility, which is Hollywood is funny shit, you know. So I'm going, okay, let's do a TV show that makes fun of TV shows. And people kind of go, oh, blah. I go, we'll do a TV show that makes fun of TV shows. We'll take the weirdest clips from TV shows, and we'll have Greg talk about the clips. Cheap. She broke with me, but people watched it. There was a pirate nature to it. You could tell when you watched the the early days. We didn't have a lot of money, but we tried really hard. I mean, we covered the first time we ever covered the red carpet of the Academy Awards. Okay, we literally climbed over the fence because we couldn't get credentials. We went to the back. We climbed over the fence, threw the camera over. In terms of the programming, when you start, you have the 31 interns. The philosophy of you and your partners was you have 24 hours to program. How many original hours did you have to put on and how many things did you repeat each day? Well, we we kind of looked at it. Everybody was, was thinking that their network was so important. We were very realistic. We said, you know what? We're not primary viewing for everybody. We're default viewing. It's like there's nothing on ABC, NBC, CBS. You know, so we had a rule that you could never go more than 20 seconds without having a famous recognizable face on the screen. So that if you were doing this, you'd see Schwarzenegger or Madonna or somebody and you'd stop to say, what's that? Um, and then we hope we, we hook you in. So we, we made a lot of rules for that. And, but we also realized that nobody's sitting down and watching us 24 hours a day. So we said people might watch us seven o'clock every night when they came home or 10 in the morning if they were, you know, a shift worker or. So does that mean you went like an eight hour blocks and repeated the eight hours? And so eight we hours? started at a six hour. Six hours. Six so hours. four. Is that common for a new network to do six hours and they just keep repeating? A lot, of, a lot of networks didn't do it because they thought they were more important. They thought they had to be a lot of original. They overspend. So the way we got around spending fortunes was, you know, by by programming saying nobody will ever watch more than four hours straight 
and nobody will ever, you know, and people will watch seven o'clock at night or eight o'clock at night. You know, so we we kind of program the blocks to match that. So your first six hours of programming was what? We did a lot of movie trailers, you know, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. We figured out how to cut movie trailers up into a lot of things. You know, Tuesday night would be foreign film movie trailers, and then we'd have another one saying, "Okay, opening this weekend." Then we have another one called Action Adventure, and then another one on comedies, and so we kind of figured out how to slice and dice movie trailers a lot. And, but then we went to the studios, and you know, we started to show that we actually people like like the channel from the first day it went on the air. And we talk to the marketing people in the studios and say, hey, listen, you know, why don't you have a camera crew when you're shooting the movie and shoot the behind the scenes and give it to us? And they were like, well, we never could get that on TV. I said, if you shoot it, I'll guarantee. This is before the DVD behind the scenes. Before the DVD behind the scenes. So they would start shooting the behind the scenes and the making of and the interviews of the directors. Was this before HBO's first look? Yes. Wow. Before that, so we 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 started getting them to do original stuff for us, um, and you know it was great because they would give us this programming for free. We would guarantee we put it on again. We had twenty four hours a day. We could put a lot of stuff on, but you know it was the interesting thing is I would then go back to the advertising department of the studios and go look at the audience that are delivering those interested in movies. You should advertise. They'd go, well, that's a great audience in interested movies. So they would buy advertising. When you think of the equation, they were paying us and buying advertising around the programming they were giving us for free. It took them a little while before they caught on to that. You know. So tell our audience the first moment you wake up or you go to work one day and you realize, holy shit. We have fucking made it. We have broken through and we are significant in this world. Um, we never doubted what it was going to be. But then I guess when you're looking for, you know, when was it validated, that success, you know, we were very pirate. Um, we were the only network that was located in Hollywood, which is interesting. Hollywood, the, the center of the world. There was no TV network located in Hollywood other than us. I was very deliberate that we put ourselves there. And, you know, we called ourselves, you know, Hollywood's network where America watches Hollywood. And you were like 25 years ahead of your time branding and graphically because yeah. you had the logo with just the E and the exclamation point. And even Netflix, which is changing the way the world sees entertainment, they just changed their logo to the N. Yeah. A lot of time, you know, that saying necessity is the mother of invention. I mean, we had to be incredibly smart, you know, to, to just get stuff done. And, um, what do you look at as a moment on the channel that people, you know... We, we were very pirate. <clears throat> and again, our, our initial equipment, we couldn't buy broadcast equipment. We actually bought um, our cameras and stuff all came from like uh, commercial like companies that, that sold off their second their equipment. Um, so the, the look was pirate, the feel was pirate. You could tell we didn't have a lot of money, um, but it was very casual. It was very celebratory, you know, celebrated the industry. I, I guess when people started coming to us, like Paula Abdul, uh, the Wayans brothers, they're going, that channel's really fun, could we host? You go, really, you want to host? You go, and, you know, again, people think there was some science to it. We had this studio, all we had to do was turn on the lights. 
you know, so you get somebody from, you know, David Allen Greer or somebody from Wayne that goes, I like the host. You go, now? You know, you just turn on the lights and turn on the camera and you were there. So we didn't have a lot of rules. We didn't have you have to plan for 27 weeks. It was like, you know, Paul, you want to host? I mean, you're a cheerleader, but you really want to try it? Okay. <laughs> you know, sure. You know, and then Paula gets, you know, a big album out. And people go, well, I saw her first on that channel. And so we did we did a lot of experimental stuff. And, uh, you know, and then we started getting noticed. I mean, we had a guy named Chris Chisholm. So when there'd be movie premieres, we would send them to... Uh, uh, you know, basically be disruptive. So it'd be the opening of George 5. We would send them out to do interviews in a, in a shark suit. Um, so it was, it was really irreverent. And you can tell we didn't take it all that seriously. You know, you had Entertainment Tonight being, you know, very serious. And then you had us being the opposite end. Value then, two and a half million. Value now? 3.75 bill. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to IKilledJFK.com, look at the trailer, Buy this documentary, I guarantee you, it will blow you away. Six degrees of separation, I'm going to mention some names, say anything that comes to mind. It could be one word, it could be a sentence, it could be a story. Keanu Reeves. Keanu, great, great guy. Um, he's our partner in, in the Bruce Lee Project. How did that happen? Um, we had come up with this idea, and I was working with a... Uh, a guy that works very closely with Canada, a guy named Stephen Hamill. And um, we we really worked on this idea. And then when we talked to Keanu about it, you know, his first reaction was, you know, I do movies, I don't do television, and I don't do reality. And, you know, but then he thought about it and said, wait a second, I was 12 years old, and my parents took me to 42nd Street to see this movie called Enter the Dragon. I looked at the screen and said, oh, my God, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Um, so Keanu came in, and then together we all went to Shannon, uh, Bruce's daughter, and uh, who again swore, you know, she's the keeper of the brand. She's the integrity of the, the group. And, uh, you know, first reaction was, my father never wanted anybody to be the next Bruce Lee. Um, he wouldn't have liked reality TV. And then we told her the idea, and she realized it wasn't fine the next Bruce Lee, and it, it wasn't about fighting. It would be about her father's philosophy. She just loved it. and um, So she joined the group, and then we further developed it, and we tested it a little, and now we just, it's now launching in, I mean, we, we tested in China, so now we're launching in uh, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Nepal, Dubai, Saudi Arabia, Abu Dhabi, and stuff fun and then people here want it now but we we want to bring it here after we kind of get all the bugs out paul allen paul allen um obviously a genius i worked um uh, paul started a company called digio uh which was really going to be one of the first digital content companies so i um i didn't have a lot of contact with paul at all but i was the their strategist for content 
because I, I kind of understood the technology side as well as the content side and how technology fundamentally changes the media business. The television show Judge Judy. Ah, Judy was great. So I, we were doing um, uh, one of my other companies called Steeplechase Media. We were doing a lot of work for Microsoft in the interactive TV world. So we were advising them on strategy and uh, but also content um, creation going, you know, if you have all this technology that allows you to do stuff, what is it that you really want to do? What is it? What does the audience want? How do you pay for it? What are the creative tools you need and all that? So this was um, the very early days of Internet when you're still at, you know, six frames a second, you couldn't really do video. So we um, we uh, came up with this idea. They had bought this company called Web TV. And so you had the capability of having more than just one thing on the screen. So the, going back to, and I, I study a lot of old television stuff. Back in the early 50s, there was a TV show called Winky Dink. Um, nobody knows this show. But Winky Dink was fascinating in that it was a little animated show, <clears throat> little stick figures, and they would always have a problem. Uh, but the writers of the show knew that there were about 3 million kids whose family bought them the Winky Dink game. Winky Dink game was a piece of green acetate that could stick to your TV screen by static electricity. They got four crayons. And Winky Dink would get to the river, and they'd say, Winky Dink can't cross the river. Hey, kids, put up your magic window. You'd stick this green acetate on, and you could draw a boat, a bridge, a rope, whatever. And um, lo and behold... Ten seconds later, we they got across the river. So as a kid, you go, "Wow, he used my road, he used my rope, you know, whatever." So the the key thing is the the writers knew that there were amount of kids that could have more than just this passive experience. And when you think about it, what did you do? You took a linear television show, you stuck a layer of density over that show, and whatever the technical capabilities over that layer of density. In 1953, it was nothing more than drawing with a crayon you can create an experience that was denser than just watching a linear TV show. So with web TV, we said, okay, we can now overlay this thing called the internet, a web browser, over a TV page, and whatever the capabilities of this web browser were, not a lot back then. Um, so we would do things, so we started with a few TV shows like Judge Judy, we did, and people kept asking, why would you pick that one? And I said, you know what, if I pick like, a show that skewed very young, like the OC or something, I know that young kids will do this. I said, what I really want to learn from this is, like, what would other people, what would my mother do? Would my mother ever use this kind of technology, my father? So Judge Judy skewed older women, who typically were home during the day, and what we found is the chat function, that they would watch the show and they would be able to chat with other people watching the show. And, you know, they would, it would be almost like going to another movie theater. They would yell at the screen, give it to him, Judy, put his ass in jail, you know. And, uh, and then you could buy Judy's bow. We did some e-commerce and stuff. So it was just a way of, of overlaying new information over the Judge Judy show. And, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of stuff to learn intellectually from it. Joan Rivers. Joan, um, you know, classic. I mean, her and Melissa did... Uh, you know, the stuff that really, one of the things that put, you know, she, Howard Stern, Greg Kinnear, Joan Rivers, I mean, they would put 
E on the map. So I can't say enough good stuff about John. Ryan Seacrest. Uh, the hardest working man in show business. Uh, I, I'm just amazed by Ryan. I mean, I met Ryan before he was, uh, you know, he was still doing just radio and stuff like that. And again, like Greg Kinnear, you just saw him and you said, oh, my God, this is going to be a force of nature. Um, I, I don't know where he gets the time to do all that he does. I mean, it's like, when does the guy sleep? He's just amazing. I remember I went to a final of American Idol because I was working with Dane Cook at the time and he was doing comedy on the on a final. And, you know, I'd never been to an American Idol and it was a live show of the finale. And it's an hour before and they're doing like the run-throughs and things. And there's a guy on stage doing the run-through. I said to the producer, the executive producer, I said, where's Ryan? Uh, he, he doesn't come till about 15 minutes before. And I'm walking around. I'll never forget this. I was just hanging out, texting by some teleprompters or something. And I'm just texting. And all of a sudden, I hear, okay, go up. Go up. And I turn my head around, and it's Ryan Seacrest is over the over the shoulder of the teleprompter guy, just having him scroll through. And that was his rehearsal, the five minutes of just looking at the copy for a live show in front of God knows 30 million people. He's amazing. You know. Greg Kinnear. Even beyond all his success, one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. I mean, we did a, a reunion some, some about a few years ago, uh, you know, from the original movie time group. And, um, you know, Greg was in doing a movie in London and he told the producer, you got to give me a day off. I got to fly. And he came to that reunion. Uh, and so it was a great time, you know, because we were, we were so pirate. We had no money. We were an absolute family. I, I think we, we figured out that from the original group, Seven people went on to become presidents of TV networks, of cable networks and stuff. So it was just an amazing place to be, an amazing time. And, and there's nobody I know that didn't just love their time there. And, and Greg was just the most humble, nicest person. And, you know, just recognizes where his roots were from. Howard Stern. I mean, the really, Howard was just totally professional and total businessman. And, you know, we started, it was a guy named Brian Owens who ran programming. We started uh, looking at that. It was, actually, it was my friend Alan, you know, my partner, who knew knew of Howard's show from New York more than we knew it here. And, uh, yeah, when we started playing around with the idea, people going, that, that doesn't make sense. You want to put a radio show on television? And we're going, it's KRP in Cincinnati. I think you were the first network to ever do that. Yeah. But for us, we didn't find anything unusual. We go, it's real-life KRP. I mean, KRP was successful. Why wouldn't the Stern Show be successful? Your proudest moment in show business. My proudest moment in show business. Um, several, but I'll give you a more current one. I mean, he obviously is um, that. And, you know, I still, I, I don't, it's in 120 countries now, and I still don't necessarily grasp the, magnitude of what it's done on pop culture and stuff and i'm i'm a little bit of a hermit and you know and i i don't really do a lot of the hollywood stuff so whenever things come up when i started doing things in china 
And Jean, the woman that I mentioned to you before, the Chinese woman would introduce me to people in China in Mandarin, and I didn't understand the word. <clears throat> you know, and she'd be going, yeah, and he found it, e, you know, they they look and go, e, and then she'd go a little further, and then I would understand, i go, ah, talk soup, talk soup, and i go like, holy shit, you know, they know the show in China, and they, they know that show all over, you know, that show ran 20-something years, and, uh, and so, so that, that, that has to be, you know, one, um, the other one that, you know, again, for me, um, I wrote a comedy about modern Chinese life, the contradictions of modern Chinese life. And I work with, I have a team of writers in China, seven women, which have this theory that Chinese men are not funny. Um, and so I worked with and we, um, my partner took it to the TV network, the biggest TV network in China. Um, it's CCTV8, which reaches 1.1 billion people. <clears throat> and, um, you know, when I, I wrote it in English, she translated it in, into Mandarin. And she came back and said, oh, the, the head of the, the network really likes it. And he wants to meet the writer. And we scheduled the dinner. And, um, you know, we go to the dinner. And the guy comes in. And I can see this look on his face. And he's talking to her in Mandarin. And, and I know a little bit. Um, and I can see him going, no, no, I want to meet the writer. This is a white guy. You know, and I'm like, really, do you think? And uh, he goes, no, I, I really didn't mean any offense. He goes, but it just never occurred to me that this was written by anybody other than Chinese. Because um, it really dug into that, you know, what happens when you have incredible economic growth in a very short period of time and people's social skills don't grow as quickly as their bank account, um, which is what you've seen going on in China, you know, for the last 30 years. And... Um, so he, you know, his first reaction was to go, look, I really love the story, but you're American. I can't put you on Communist Party television. And two weeks later, he called back and said, you know, I went to the propaganda department, you know, which was their standards and practices. And um, <clears throat> they know you. And they said, you're okay. But they really liked the story and the message of the story. You know, which was really not everything rich is good or poor is good, world is good or whatever. It was really finding balance in life. And they said, if I want to do it, I can. So um, we had a comedy on national TV in China that ended up uh, a few years ago was nominated as the best comedy uh, in the Asian TV Awards. We didn't win, but it was the only comedy from China, sitcom from China that was nominated. And, you know, I'm, I'm at the awards ceremony and I'm going, this is really interesting that the funniest TV show in China is written by a New York Jew. Um, and, you know, they said, well, it actually does make sense. But uh, but it was kind of that. So, I mean, holy shit, I had 70 episodes of comedy on Chinese television and I don't really speak it. Had you ever written anything in your lifetime? Uh, yeah, I, I, I love writing, but I never get the chance because once he started. And how old were you when you wrote that show? This is four years ago. Incredible, Larry. 70 episodes of comedy. And narrated, the show is a comedy narrated by a donkey who talks. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level? Uh, biggest disappointment. Um, I own this, in a, in a partnership with some other people, we own this amazing domain name. We own television.com. And we said, wow, this is great. We're going to be all things television. And we started this TV network. We were the first ones. 
we really got ahead on the technology. We were showing videos, you know, with Dr. 98 now, you know, way before, you know, the YouTubes and, and those things. And it was doing amazing. We were getting a million people a week that were watching this channel. And um, uh, then the, um, but it was expensive. You had to rent, you know, bandwidth and all this stuff. And at that time, advertising for every thousand viewers you delivered, you could charge $25 and stuff. So it made a lot of sense. And then the internet economy crashed and everybody began to dump all their inventory and inventory costs went down to about 25 cents from $25. And here we are, we had all this, these people who loved the channel and the more they watched the channel, the more money we would lose. And we were going at, you know, 25 cents a thousand, we can't make any money. So we, it was, we ended up having to close it because we, we just couldn't figure out how you, you know, do. so we, we kind of learned about getting ahead of the technology and stuff like that. And so what'd you sell the domain name for? And we still have it. Nice. Buy it. <laughs> yeah, we, we still have it. So people offered us a bunch of money and stuff, but we, the guys who own it, we're all entrepreneurs and we don't want to just sell it. We want to participate whenever it becomes. Last question. What advice do you have for the young person somewhere in the world that took a job working underneath a subway, cutting wires and rats and cockroaches or any any shitty job they're at at the lowest possible level in whatever profession they are across the world and how to take their career and navigate to the place where they moved up to get to the point where you are in your career. I think, I think you know, the, the best is, I think there's always hope. Uh, but, you know, if you, you have a dream, you know, go for it. But you got to temper it with being realistic. I think one of the things that people don't, you know, really do a lot is they, they think that their idea is great. And a lot of people I know just stick with it too long. I mean, there comes a point where you have to be very honest with yourself and make an assessment. I mean, I've been wrong 10 times more than I've been right. But the difference is I get to the point where I go, oh, that didn't work next. And, but then when you know you're really on something is, you know, have the, the fortitude to stick with it no matter how many times people tell you you're crazy. So it's really, you know, finding that balance and just doing an honest assessment of just because you had the idea doesn't make it a good idea all the time. A lot, a lot of times you're wrong. I mean, we were going to do, um, Alan and I were going to do a new network called FX TV, Fitness and Exercise Television. And we thought it was the greatest idea and stuff. It was the days when we needed television. And then the internet came along. And we're going, wait a second. Why wouldn't we do something where we have yoga at 7 o'clock in the morning when somebody may want to do spinning and stuff? So linear TV is just so wrong. And even though we were far along in, in getting that thing going, we just said, you know what? This does not make sense anymore the way the world has changed. We just killed it off. And thank God, you know, because... It just doesn't make sense in the modern world. I would never do linear TV again. The only, I, you know, people go, you're a network guy. I go, no, 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 no. I'm a content guy. I, uh, the equation is real simple. Do you want to watch what he wants you to watch when they want you to watch it? Or do you want to watch what you want to watch when you want to watch it? I mean, we know the answer to that. Uh, so I really believe you program for, you know, people's convenience. They can watch it any time they want on any device they want and stuff. And I think it's taken the, the, the media world a bunch of years to catch up to that thought that, 
you can't fight it. It's going to, you know, eventually the consumer is going to win. In your opinion, what does it take to go in a room and take things to the next level like Greg Kinnear did? It can't just be because he was there and he's great. Like, what is it? What advice do you have for the young person on the other side of the camera who wants to make it to the next level, wants to impress somebody like you, wants to blow somebody like you away and get that on-camera job? Well, I mean, most people in this town, you know, they uh, you have this unfortunate thing. You're the prettiest girl in a little town and everybody says, oh, you should be an actress, you should be an actress. And, you know, they all come here and they, they realize that there's another thousand pretty girls in town and stuff. So it really comes down to being more than a pretty girl. You you really have to put your time. You got to go to acting classes. You got to go to the voice classes. You got to really develop your skills. Um, and then you got to, then you couple that with natural talent. I mean, Greg Kinnear was a natural talent and stuff. Um, you know, Katie Wagner, on the other hand, you know, went on to Wide World of Sports, one of our originals. You know, Katie was well-schooled and stuff like that. So it, you, you really got to put the time in learning the skill. And then you, then you have to have the fortitude. I mean, the days where people come here and they're here for two days and get discovered, or there are not many of those. You know, it happens very rarely. Uh, most people come here and they, they quit and leave before they really have given it a chance. So it's a lot of personal fortitude to, with, with, you know, withstand the pain. Awesome. Larry Namer, this has been really extraordinary. I've really, really enjoyed it. I know when you came here, you probably wonder what what's going on here, but uh, our audience is going to love this. You really deliver. It's just so inspirational. I thank you very thank much. You, thank you. Awesome. As always, this is an episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. If you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section, and one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Okay, landing on Dave Gregory, September 26, 2017. Heading reads, Career Boosting, five stars. And it reads, this podcast is so incredible. I binge listen to your podcast and I learn so much about what I need to do for my career. It's literally transformed my career as a stand-up comedian. I just listened to your podcast with Byron Allen before this podcast. I had never heard of him, but it's charged me to keep going with my career. I've learned patience, and I hope to one day be a guest on this podcast and get one of your famous introductions. Stay incredible, Barry. Well, thank you so much, Dave Gregory. Good luck with your career, and congratulations. You are a winner. Special thanks to our sponsor, AquaTrue, with the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. 
I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. And just a reminder, if you didn't get a chance to check out the film I Killed JFK or the five rare interviews of the last living people who were the experts on the JFK assassination, you can simply go to ikilledjfk.com, check out the trailer, purchase these two films. I guarantee you they will change your life forever. ikilledjfk.com. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for. Life is for the dreamers, they have. It's never quite over till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrycats.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.